Hello, everyone, and welcome to Me Machine Dean. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Fair game. Color Vetrex magic. Your name's not down, you're not coming in. All this and more on This Week in Retro. Up to date news for out of date tech. How are you guys this week? And welcome, Dean, by the way. Hello, hello everyone. Second time oh. here. Very exciting. Very nice. exciting. For anyone who's not aware, Mean Machine Dean uh, does um, wonderful Twitch streams where um, there's lots of fun to be had and uh, lots of embarrassing Dean going on by other people <laughs> in the streams. Uh, thank you very much for coming on again. I hope you enjoy it. How's your week been, Chris? Got any cars um, left? Got any cars left? Well, look, when I first re-bought the Alpha off my son, people, I don't know why, because this this was clearly about retro computing and games and stuff, but people were asking for Alpha updates. So if you did miss last week, here is the Alpha update. I accidentally sold it. And I do mean accidentally. I basically had two cars, the Alpha and uh, Astra, both cheap cars, and I couldn't decide which one to keep, so I put them both on the market and within minutes had hits on both. And within two days, they were both gone. So now I have to steal the wife's extra to get to work and back. So, yep, uh, very sad, actually, very sad. But the guy who bought it is a clear enthusiast. He's got another one as well, the V6. And so I know it's going to be taken care of. It's funny how you get attached to these things. But, yep, it's gone. So, sorry, that was the last Alpha update. You're going to buy another car, though, surely. Yeah, probably an Alpha. Yeah? <laughs> really? Uh, maybe. Uh, I want a small hatchback next, but so maybe the Alpha Mito or the Fiat 500, which I absolutely love. Because you sold like two cars. You think you can sell two cars and then buy a bit more expensive car? You can push the boat out? Yeah, well, that's what I'm planning on because yeah, these days, used car prices are stupidly up. Um, I don't know if they are over there, but over here they really they are, have sort yeah. of, yeah. yeah. So you might as well buy brand new if you're only after something small and cheap, like, you know, a Fiat 500 or a Kia Picanto or something like that. So that's probably the way I'll go, but no rush, seriously. With what we've got access to, there's no rush. I can just take my time and buy the right thing at the right time. So yeah, that's the plan. Nothing to do with computers or games or retro or anything. That's my weekly update. <laughs> what about yourself, Dave? I um, have mentioned the KVMs, the, the switches I've got between my five retro computers for a while, and I had all sorts of headaches with it. I, I, it I, if I go back in time, I wouldn't do this. What I wanted to do was have five computers all connected up to the same monitor, speakers, uh, MIDI device, keyboard, mouse, um, audio, and it's such a rabbit hole of going down the ethernet but now as of like three o'clock in the morning everything works it's all connected up it's a total success i spent yesterday making looms of cables so that each each pc has its own matrix style connection that can go into it uh, and keeps it away from all the other ones it's all it's all worked out just great it's all pulled together but it it was really bothering me because i had stuff everywhere the house was a mess yeah. so i'm finally glad to get the kvm sorted out the most boring thing in the world but it does mean that the star wars yoke that's sitting here unused i'm now going to maybe get my head around to what i'm going to do to get that working because the kvms are causing such so much of a mess i had no room to use it nothing like an incentive i can confirm some people may have missed it because you said it so fast 3 a.m you were messing about with wiring for kvm 
And I can confirm that because obviously being in Australia, different time zone, I'd already started my day. I was working away in the show notes and suddenly Dave, start, Dave starts posting pictures and stupid comments in the show notes. I'm like, mate, what, what are you even doing awake? <laughs> <laughs> and he starts telling me about his KVM switches. Absolutely yeah, mad, I'll mate. tell you, anyone Absolutely who's mad. not, anyone, anyone about them, uh, even though they're not very interesting, I will bore people to death about them. I know what you've been doing this week, Dean. It's um, it's it, it's really upsetting, and you'll tell us later on. Uh, other than that, though, I have, have you been doing else? to cry. Um, yeah, so uh, we'll come on to that. Lotion, they're going to get banned I'm off the show. You, I'm glad you finished that sentence. <laughs> yes, um, indeed. Um, <laughs> Um, well, there's been some interesting things. So I've done a, a bit of uh, charity streaming in the last last week. Yeah, I think it was last week. I can't remember. La- it, the weeks sort of blur into one at the moment. Um, so yes, we'll come on to the very sad story, um, which we'll mention. But I, I found something in my my apartment that I completely forgotten about, and it's this. And this is a funky S, and it's basically an all-in-one retro streaming console. And that is Tekken running on. Uh, sorry, Tekken Three running on it. Just for comparison. It's That's tiny. a Game Boy Advance SP. What? <laughs> so, so yes, it is very small, <laughs> as you can see. Um, it is very, is it, is, very, is very it tiny. good to use. Well, do you know what people say? Oh, well, it's too small. You can't use that. Genuinely, I've been playing. Well, I, at least I was before playing Advance Wars Two, and it plays actually well. And you kind of forget how small it is. the The buttons are very responsive and stuff. The only downside that I can find is the shoulder buttons. There are very, very mm-hmm. small, um, yeah. and as such, they are a bit hard to hit. But I mean, you know, it, it, it's playing a PS One game very competently. Um, I'll I'll send some more videos. Let's uh, get less shy. For the, for the listeners, what size is that screen? Yeah. I believe it's a. Two point summit inch screen. It could it's even be insane. slightly smaller. So yeah, it's it's very so small. small. Um, it looks smaller yeah. than two inches. Yeah. So when you say yeah. when you say stream, well, you know, men men in... always exaggerate sizes, right? So um, I think from I think from quarter to quarter, it's two inches. But I think the actual screen is like one point summit inch. So yeah, um, yeah. but yeah, in but yeah, in terms of what it can actually play, I mean, it's got like well, they can quite see that, but we can play like Game Boy, Game Boy Color. Um, what else have we got on here? Turbo Graphics, um, PS One. I think you can actually do Mega CD on here if you've got all the legally obtained um, ROM files. Mm, um, so yeah, it, it's a fascinating bit of kit, and I may actually do a video on it because it's one of those oddities that exist. Because I've got like I think it was at the time the world's smallest Game Boy that was like this big, and it was just mm-hmm. it was just far too small to play. But I think mm. that is the the absolute threshold of where small and actually usable both meet in the right place and mm, it is mm. it's very cool it's a very cool bit of kit so yeah i've been uh, sort of coming to re-love that that whole bit of kit again but yeah funky s it's called and uh i think it's if originally you, if, a kickstarter if you if you hadn't have told me it worked i would have thought it was just a, a little ornament to the thing that there's no yeah. chance it <laughs> nothing inside it but it's incredible that it actually so, works so the grunt is inside that it's not streaming it off another nope, off your nope, pc or anything that's nope, insane all contained, all contained within this tiny little thing so that's the battery pack there that you can see that's and it's all, it's all it's all within this tiny tiny thing and it's um it's completely open source so people have done some crazy things with it but um yeah i mean as i said as a as a quick go to i mean you know as i said the the size difference between an hmm. sp and that is quite significant but um hmm. yeah it's it's uh 
it's a really strange oddity. The battery life is actually substantially quite good. I think the most I've got out of it is probably like four hours, maybe something like that. Wow. Um, micro <laughs> USB and yeah, it's um, yeah, it's just hilarious when you put the two up against each other. It's literally like a, a third of the size. So it looks yeah. like anyway. a Game Boy cartridge instead of a yeah, Game Boy. Exactly. That's what it is. Yeah, that's it's the what size it is. of a Game Boy cartridge. Yeah, it's true. I never thought yes, of that. That's mental. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So anyway, that's what I've been up to. <laughs> Yeah, we'll find out later on what the other thing you went up to is. It's um, yeah. been rather upsetting watching it unfold on Twitter. Uh, although a little bit predictable as well, uh, having gone through it myself, and Neil's gone through the same thing recently. But we'll go on with the show. So, I'd like to welcome three new patrons, uh, Custardo, Elk1984, and Colin. Thank you very much for signing up to our Patreon campaign. Um, welcome to the list of patrons. Um, if you would like to help out the show, if you would like to help out with costs, then um, patreon.com slash thisweekinretro, links in the show notes. Sign up if you want to. No pressure to do it if you don't. I also wanted to talk about how this show works in terms of YouTube and podcasts, because it struck me that there must be people out there who listen to this on the podcast and the podcast app who are not aware that we are actually on YouTube as well. Producer Duncan spends a great deal of time every week cutting our faces in and out as we speak and putting graphics up on the screen, things so you can see. It's a much better experience to watch the podcast on YouTube than it is to listen. But of course, not everyone's got time to listen to, to, to watch a podcast, whereas you might have a lot more time to listen. So lots of people listen, of course. So if you are watching on YouTube and it maybe puts you off because you don't have the time to sit down and watch, then by all means, listen. And if you're listening and you didn't know that you can watch it on YouTube, then maybe have a look at it on YouTube. Maybe see if you enjoy that even more. In 1992... Our both-born Dominic Diamond arrived at our screens with groundbreaking TV show Games Master, but this wasn't his first appearance on the telly. And thanks to a submission from Big Blue Lou, I've been able to watch him do a news report that, to be honest, wasn't far away from Chris Morris' levels of brass-eye satire. Um, however, it is absolutely fascinating for quite a few reasons, not just because it's Dominic Diamond. In fact, even if it wasn't Dominic Diamond doing this, it would still be just as fascinating. Um, it's obviously just before he goes on to do Games Master, um, but he's you wouldn't know by watching this that it, what, he, what he later um, blossoms into being. Um, he talks to someone from um, Fast about software piracy in Scotland. Um, for uh, Scottish news, it's it's a kind of a, a an offshoot of the news. It's a kind of a twenty five minute uh, special report they've done on uh, software piracy in Scotland. It's nineteen ninety two, so it's the the kind of peak of the Amiga times, um, just after the the ST started to fade away. Um, so fast to the Federation against software theft. And of all places, he goes to DMA Design in Dundee to talk to them about the impact of it, as well as going on a, um, 
a docudrama style raid um, where they're hamming it up for the camera, but then it does turn into a real raid and talks about some of the frustrations involved. Um, so I, I had some problems with this the, this this documentary. I'll get those out of the way first of all. I had some problems with it. Um, software piracy is not theft. I mean, theft is when you go and remove something. You don't you don't, you can't actually go into a game and if you're going to a shop and you're, and you're shoplifting, that's theft. If you're copying something, you're not stealing something. But they they make it sound that that way. They talk about revenue decreasing. They talk about uh, saying that. Throughout the they assert a figure that I think is quite credible that for every one game sold for the Amiga or ST, nine were pirated. Now that makes sense to me. That that makes perfect sense to me. But they then go on to to breathlessly say that that means they've lost out. Instead of one million in sales, they should have got ten million in sales, which is obviously nonsense. I mean, absolute nonsense because there's no way that. If someone's copying six or seven of their mates' games, it saved them going to the shops to buy six or seven of those games because they wouldn't do so. Uh, so there's a bit of pearl clutching and exaggeration and they're calling them gangs and all the rest of it. But that said, um, I, I think broadly they're right. They talk about the ST dying from piracy. And that's what DMA Design said that there's no, the no, there's no need to make SD games because of it anymore. And they say that they're struggling to make money from Amiga games because they're getting pirated. They talk about how the the pirates are getting the games before the shops do. And they talked about this, even this innovative thing that they did. They sent it out to duplicators and they sent different discs to different duplicators so that a complete copy of the game didn't get out to the pirates early. Um, I know that lots of us like to think that um, what we did as pirates when we were younger, of course, I was a pirate when I was younger, what we did as pirates as younger didn't do any harm. But the truth is, it absolutely did. I've said before that if I, if instead of buying blank discs and pirate games um, as a kid, if I had instead saved up my money and bought a budget game or bought... Um, a game every so often, perhaps joined the home computer club that I was in for the Amstrad or Special Reserve and got the games a little bit cheaper that way, I would have done much better. I would have respected the games more, played them longer and got into them more. But there are some things that it doesn't talk about in the documentary, some things that um, are fair to point out. It's not It's not all one-sided. Um, the Magazines sometimes, I don't know. I don't know if I can say this now for libel, but magazines I felt sometimes colluded in overrating games. Allegedly, you look at possibly. Rise, Throw yeah, those you look words at rise, in, and then you're fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Allegedly, possibly, maybe, sort of. That's how it looks to me. But this is just an opinion. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm resident in Somalia, so sue me in Somalia if you want. Um, <laughs> Magazines colluded in overrating games. Rise of the Robots, for example, was talked up and talked up, and it was absolute junk, um, absolute junk. Um, games were unfinished. Games were not polished. It was very clear from lots of games that they got the basic design done. It was a good design. They started making it, and the quality just tailed off, and the magazines wouldn't tell us that. Um, so there was lo a lot of low-quality rubbish out there. You couldn't have faith that going out and spending thirty pounds on a game was, that was what was going to last you more than thirty minutes before you said this is absolute rubbish. And of all the software houses they went to, DMA Design 
were for a lot of reasons a bad place to go because none of these criticisms really apply to them. They produced highly polished, finished, awesome games. DMA design is is probably different from the majority of the industry for this because when you bought a if you bought Lemmings for example, uh, unless you're Mark Fitzy stuff who hates it, if you bought Lemmings, you couldn't bring that home and think you'd think you'd been conned. Uh, if you bought one of their games, you, you got your money's worth. But as for other houses though, Ocean and all the rest of it, sometimes what you got was unjustifiably bad. So while I would say that the boxes and boxes and boxes of discs that I had pirated as a kid, I wish I'd got box games instead. That's only with hindsight and knowing which games to buy. Um, there are games that are reviewed in magazines really well that are just rubbish. Um, so I don't know if, if, if this is all feeding into each other, if because there was so much piracy this all happened. I don't know. Um, now, Dean, you strike me as someone who isn't into piracy. I bet you've never copied a game and you're far too ethical for it. Have you ever? Um, possibly, maybe. <laughs> it, it was on the rumour mill, maybe. Um, as a person who owns a box copy of X copy, maybe. So even um, even your copying software is legitimate. So of course you've never tried <laughs> <indeed. anything. laughs> Well, you know, you've got you've got you've got to at least pay for something to then duplicate. Um in short, yes. Um I mean, I think you'd be very hard fixed to find someone who hasn't in their gaming lifetime at least dabbled with it. I sit on the fence. Well, whilst I was listening to that, I was kind of thinking about my own childhood and growing up and um Especially years ago, like we used to go to Amiga shows and they would have special offers on a variety of different box games and stuff. But but even then, they were still at a very high premium. And as you said, I think part of the problem is we live in a world now where, you know, reviews are very easily accessible. You know, before you buy a game, you can quickly go on the internet and find out a game and be like, is this for me? Yes or no. There's YouTube videos. Things are a lot more easier to understand. So you're probably more than likely to part away with your money knowing that you've done your research. Obviously, years ago, we didn't really have that. We only had magazines, which, as you said, could have been tailored, adjusted, manipulated in in that particular developer's um, favour, depending on who the writer was and maybe how much was slipped under the table, but that may have happened. Um, But, uh, you know, thinking back, you know, I remember the day that we discovered X-Copy existed and, you know, Amiga piracy and things of that sort, and you do start to ask the question, am I paying a premium just for a pretty box? You know, And at the end of the day, if you're going to be parting with a severe amount of money and get a very disappointing end result, um, do you really want to be that person who has to walk back into the shop and be like, hey, you know this really expensive box that I've just bought? I need to hand it back to you. And probably the people would be like, no, thanks. You're going to be keeping that yourself. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very difficult one. I, I think the... The figures that were put into there, I think, are, as you said, massively inflated. Um, I don't necessarily agree with all of it. The The comment you made around theft is such a it's such a difficult one, right? I mean, it's it's difficult difficult for us to say back then how people would have felt compared to now because we live in such a digital world. People have artwork theft, audio um, song theft. In fact, I've actually had this happen to me where um, some of the music that I've made has been re-uploaded to YouTube and people have been making money off my own music, which I had no idea um, had happened. So the, the digital theft of it does exist. However, 
again, it's it's such a difficult minefield because then there's so many different people involved in the construction of a game. You've got the artists, the audio people, the the programmers. You know, if somebody copies a game, are all of those copyright things being infringed? You know, is individual people going to then be kicking up a stink because, well, I'm an independent person and I created the artwork for this, so I should be entitled to X. So it's it's a very difficult thing. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I remember around the time period when this documentary was made, Fast were putting lots of adverts out, um, especially in magazines. They were like, don't do this, you know, it's very bad. And even in the um, five years that I was working at GameStation a long time ago, we would actually have to sit down and watch a video, I think it was every six months or to a year, um, from Trading Standards, who would quote Fast. Um, so there was a massive push to try and get this, this going. And and I agree. I, I think with DMA design, it, it's not the best choice. I think it would have been better to see DMA versus a small independent where the same thing had happened and then do a comparison of what the impact is. Because obviously, if you're a larger studio where this is happening, you're, you could argue your overall revenue numbers aren't going to be hit as much. Whereas someone who's done this independently, that margin is going to be far greater. So it's... I, I, I think, it, yeah, I, I think... It's I think DMA one. were certainly affected by it, and there's no, no sure. question that they were. That was it was um, definitely damaging their ability to earn money. And I think um, while I do think that it was vastly overstated and, and fast, we're quickly we're very quick to become ridiculous with what the, the, the things they came out with. And I think it was clear at the time they were being ridiculous. At the same time, it's clear from what DMA Design said that they were really struggling with it, and. Like they said, it killed the ST market, and it was. They said the, the Amiga market was going to die because of it, and they were right. I mean, it did. Um, but I think that a comparison would have been someone like uh, Ocean, where they could have said to them, yet yeah, how come the games you're putting out, this game isn't finished? This game doesn't work properly. This game you, it's half-baked, and how can you expect people to pay money for that? But a difficult thing to do. DME are, are, are maybe a, an example of... Um, as I said, of of what's what's of of what's right with the industry rather than what's wrong with it. The one thing I will say, and I've always said this, and this is going to be a very controversial statement, is good. I genuinely comments, believe. Dean. I <laughs> I genuinely <laughs> believe the success of the PlayStation One globally wasn't just because it was this revolutionary box that was affordable. But I genuinely feel that because it was so easily moddable to play backup games, people went out and just bought them for, for ease of use. Because, you know, I remember there was a chap who, who turned up at our place. We, we used to do modding in, in our family, and we, we probably did most of them in the southeast of England, I would say. Um, and there was, a, there was a chap who turned up, and, you know, we, we weren't into doing copied games. We were just there to mod them. And this guy came back from Thailand, and he had this suitcase just filled with games that you'd bought for like 50 pence a pound you know brand new games like metal gear solid that hadn't even been released in japan yet that had already been backed up and i'm going this shouldn't be possible so the things you've got to ask yourself well if it costs me i don't know how much it was back then 20 30 pounds however much it was to solder four points on a uh, a playstation board to then get an endless supply of games for a fraction of what the game costs. Of course, that's going to have a massive impact on how many of those machines are sold. And I, I genuinely remember 
a time where you wouldn't even ask what console someone had in their house because you could bet your bottom dollar there was a PlayStation in that house because of how affordable things were and how easily modifiable they were as well. Yeah, I think it's certainly true that people bought Amigas and they bought Atari STs because of piracy, because they knew that their friends had boxes and boxes of games that they would get. Um, I know that my parents made sure that the, the the Christmas that we got our first microcomputer, four or five other houses in the street also got the same one that I got. And when <laughs> we moved on to Atari then. ST, mm. yeah, four or five other houses got that got there. And piracy must have been part of the factor there. And you would have people buying an Amiga, and and the Amiga was initially Amiga was a very expensive uh, machine, but by by 1990, 91, 92, 93, the Amiga became a very inexpensive machine, and you would maybe pay a bit a bit more than what you would for a console. But with the Amiga, you would have that and never have to buy another game. Um, so. It, I don't think you can separate all the good things and all the bad things from piracy and see if you did, if you call this away, then this would be the result. I mean, it's all it's all confused together. What do you think, Chris? Oh, the piracy is always interesting, and it's funny how you think about it in different ways depending on what it is that's being copied. So, I mean, I thought nothing of copying games tape to tape. You know, in the days of the Spectrum, I thought absolutely nothing. The day my mum got a a you know double cassette boombox with dubbing was like, great, I can copy games. But everybody was doing that to copy music as well, and nobody really talks about that. In fact, one of the things that Dominic says in this thing is, you know, well, if this happened in the music industry, it would be a really big deal. He does point at a stack of CDs, which back then we couldn't write our own CDs. You have to remember the context of <laughs> the te- technology that. of the time. I did time. enjoy that. Yeah, but everybody was copying friggin' music. Even if you, you, you would take a CD and record it to tape if you wanted a copy of that but didn't want to pay for it. So that was happening in the music industry. You know, it's not just computer games. But I thought nothing of, you know, copying Spectrum games, although most of my collection were legit, the... the the, the, the sort of piracy I did, which I think, if we're honest, most of us are probably in, in this bracket, I think, is, you know, we would buy some games and our friends would borrow them. And if they didn't feel like buying a copy themselves, they would make a copy of it. Okay. So I'm talking about easy to copy games here. Um, and likewise, I would buy legit games. But if my mate, you know, Sean had a copy of Driller and I could, didn't have the money to buy Driller, then guess what? I would take that I would copy that cassette and then every time I wanted to play it and it asked for the page paragraph and word number so I could get past the copy protection I'd actually ring up Sean I did this actually <laughs> it was actually on wings on the Amiga I did this but I would ring up. mate it's like page 27 paragraph 3 word 5 he got sick of that after a while um, but you know that kind of thing went on so what I'm talking about is not what they are talking about in this documentary which is orchestrated piracy and there's two sides to it. One is, you know, the challenge of cracking the code, you know, now going into Amiga and ST era, so hard to copy disks. Um, so there's a the challenge of copying the code, and apparently some people get a kick out of that. Um, don't say anything bad about hackers and crackers because they'll come after you, right? They'll come after you. But what I am going to say is this. That to me is akin to taggers, you know, in the street that that have you know, they get a kick out of writing a funky street name on somebody's fence and that's how they get their name out there so that they can become famous. Um, I think we could all, you know, each of us would easily, you know, rattle off. In fact, I'll ask you guys a question. What's your favourite, if we're talking about ST Amiga era games, what's your favourite software house? Oh, FTL. FTL? 
Mm, they're talking probably, about le- legit publishers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would say probably Cinemaware actually. Cinemaware, okay. Mm. I'd, yeah, I'd have to say the Cygnosis or Team Seventeen. Right. Let me ask you another question. What's your favourite gang of crackers? The one on Dave's shirt. Razor. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. No, for me it's Pompey Pirates. Okay, so you do remember one, Dean? Do you actually remember them by name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that, so that, that's yeah. why I said that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, could, uh, so, so made I'm me boys automation, <laughs> Finland. There you go. Yeah, okay, so the names ones. did get yeah. out there. Well, that ruins my point. My point was going to be their names are not as memorable as the legit publishers, um, and that probably still holds true in the mass market. And it's it's that sort of niche of people that actually, you know, when I saw a crack trow. It, it wasn't, oh, mate, these guys are awesome. They've cracked this game. It was like, click, I want to play the game. Oh, I if love I'm the playing, I love no, them. I'm I out of them. there. I'm out of Just get me into oh. the game. So, you know, that, anyway, that's that's where I come from because most of my games were legit. So I have you know, no interest and, and certainly no nostalgia towards certain crack throws or anything like that. It's an interesting area to, to investigate now, but, yes, yeah, certainly wasn't into it back then. In fact, I remember the first day, so pirating Spectrum games was easy, but I was hanging out with one of my mates, Steve, and he took me to these friends of his. I'd never met these guys before, and I never, ever met them again after. But we went into their house. I can still remember what street it was in. Um, it was this back alley. Went into their house, and upstairs they had a couple of Amigas set up, and they're just there duplicating games. They were very interested in chatting to me because I had a copy of Barbarian, and they hadn't cracked that yet. So they wanted me to lend them a copy of Barbarian. I, I never did because I never went back there again. But I got <laughs> a copy of Hybris. I got um, Firepower, and I got uh, Zany Golf. And so to me, those would always be the first Amiga games I had pirate copies of. And I didn't have many pirate copies, but in my head, it was like meeting freaking drug dealers. It was just this this world I'd never had access to and I possibly never wanted to even see again, you know, really getting in on the people that knew how to copy Amiga games It was because it was so much harder. Um, but even playing those games and some, some other games I did get hold of later, for me, they always felt often compromised you know it was like okay there's only so much space on a disc they've managed to get past some code protection and they've added a crack throw usually with some extra music graphics floating around text telling you you know um what they'd like to do to your mum or you know whatever they wanted to put on their crack throw um <laughs> and where's where's that space come from on the disc what's missing from the legit legit mm. game it was always in the back of my head and so whenever i played those games i was always questioning is this actually the game i could have got from the shop does that make sense mm. Mm. yeah so what what a lot of what they would do would be writing routines to compress down Mm. the games and writing extra routines into the game so that when they loaded it from disc yeah. it, it would decompress so they would they would also say packed and cracked by or cracked by someone and then packed by someone else okay um i i did enjoy the whole i guess the scene of it as you would say yeah. um and, and that's where the demo scene has come from these days uh i did enjoy that side of it um I used to go, and in fact, the documentary goes into the Barra's Market in Glasgow. The Barra's Market in Glasgow is a huge, um, I guess, flea market is the right word for it. And there were at least six or seven different stalls in this huge market that were selling pirate games. So when I was... Um, maybe 13 or 14, I used to get the train in with a couple of my pals. We used to go to the Barra's, and we used to go and look at what prices the the stalls were charging and go to the cheapest one 
or the cheapest one that we thought were not idiots um, and <laughs> they had up-to-date games and they, we thought they would work because there was no, you, you wouldn't get a refund really. I mean, you have to get a train back into Glasgow a couple of weeks later and ask for a refund. So what you would do is you would go and you would buy a few games from them and then go home and copy each other's games that you bought. So I would, if I bought three games and two of our mates bought three games each, we'd each get nine games. Um, but there was definitely a seedy, edgy element to it. They were bragging about the police and all the rest <laughs> of it. And in fact, the documentary talks about how the police were somewhat ineffective in dealing with them. Mm. Um, all they would, all the looks like, is all they would do is take the discs away, the pirate discs away from them. Not even the public domain ones. Yeah, they'd have um, to give those back, wouldn't they? That was fascinating. Yeah, was like, so they, the police have to sort through and work out which is pirate yeah. games and which is public domain. How much taxpayers' money does that take? <laughs> I up? know, very toothless. I mean, if, if you've got if you've got pirate games and you lose the whole lot, you would think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a bit toothless. But it was definitely a little bit drug dealery kind of feeling going on there, um, and. The guys doing it were always uh, they were a bit older, so um, we we mostly talked to people the same age as us in the hobby, which means that um, back then, 12, 13, 14 years old. But these guys were kind of 20, 25 years old, so they, they'd be a lot older than us now. But back then, they were they were adults and they were they were dealing in pirate games and all the rest of it. But yeah, um, the, the bars was where I went, um, and. Talking and brushing about something you said, Chris, you said most of the games were legit, but you felt the pirate ones you had were compromised in some way. Yes, I, you always had a feeling that when a pirate game didn't work, you didn't know, was it the game, was it something I did, or was it the was the crack not right, was that the reason for it? It's it's funny because this comes into with one of your favourite games, Star Wars, you know, arcade Star Wars, but I'm thinking of the mm. Amiga port now. Only now when, I mean, I've got legit copy on the shelf again anyway, but mm -hmm. when I've been trying to play on my PC in emulation before I actually got that in my hands, it depends which ADF you download and, and who cracked it and maybe who compacted it mm -hmm. as to whether or not some of those bits of digitized speech samples are in the game. There are some cracked copies that clearly they have compromised on space and there's some samples missing. Yeah. So it really depends on which version you get. Yeah. But the swing side of that is it's because of the work of all these crackers that now we have the digital preservation that we do yeah. because otherwise we wouldn't have access to these ADFs and, you know. Yeah, and a lot of the a lot of the Atari ST pirate games I get would say STE fixed on mm. them. So the Atari brought out the Atari ST and then later they brought out the Atari STE and it was nearly the same but not quite. So if you use some undocumented features on the ST, it might not work in the STE, but the crackers would actually fix these games and then re-release them, yeah. which would mean that sometimes you had a better experience with a pirated game than you would with a normal one. <laughs> but if it helps you decide if piracy is a good or a bad thing, it still happens now. People make homebrew games for the Amiga or the ST or the C64 or the CPC, whatever, particularly on the Commodore 64, this is rife. They'll make a homebrew game. They'll charge a modest fee for it. Mm. Buy it or don't buy it. They're clearly not making very much money on this. If you work out how much money they're getting per hour, it'll be a pittance. Yet there's still a desperate rush to get a pirated copy of that out. And when you see that pirated copy come out, um, I, I, I'm, I'm appalled when it happens these yeah. days. And... Why is it any different back in the day? It's difficult to say. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, that that's my that's my take on it. Now, I don't think I could support piracy. Now, I don't think I I, I I can support and say it was the right thing to do. But I certainly did it. I did loads and loads of it. 
So we are sponsored, thank you very much, by Pixel Addict Magazine. Pixel Addict Magazine is a monthly um, magazine which covers more than just gaming. It covers the whole lifestyle of retro. Um, great magazine. Um, I, I think, uh, Chris, you and I read it. And uh, Dean, can you read? Um, I, I, I do try. Um, maybe. <laughs> Look at the pictures. I, I, I do read. I do read, yes. I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, but yes, um, it's, it's nice to have something physical in your hand for a change. Yeah, it is. No one yeah. likes PDFs. Buy a, buy a mag. Enjoy But it. you can also buy it on PDF. <laughs> <laughs> you can. You can. Uh, this this month it's a new monthly magazine. I've had a quick look through it. I've, I've not had much time. I'm so busy, but I've quick look through it. And the first thing I went to was part two of the pet article I've been following from Mike. It's a great series where he builds a new case for a pet and actually puts an Amiga in it because that's what you do with things these days. You shove an Amiga in. It's a great story. Uh, another another great story just after it was on PC prices in the early 90s, and that was a wild ride in the early 90s. PCs were massively expensive. And within the space of a few years, they were ubiquitous. Everyone was getting one in their house. They were cheap. Um, worth reading those. But I haven't sat down to read the main article, which um, the the wonderful dinosaur in the front with his big teeth um, is about. This um, haven't sat down to read that yet, but I, I will do soon. Um, so thank you very much to Pixel Addict Magazine. Go and take a subscription. Go and buy the PDF. Go and order the physical copy, or go to your newsagent and buy a copy there. So back in the golden age of arcades, vector monitors were common. Um, I've been rattling on for weeks about my love of Star Wars, which is a, which is a, a color vectrex, a color vector game. In the arcades, I don't think half were vectors. I think less than half were vectors, but there was lots of vector games there, particularly earlier on. And they work differently than what's called a raster scan monitor, which is just a monitor these days because everything is raster scan. Um, which was the format that won out and what we all use now. So vector monitors don't have pixels. Um, they draw lines on the screen and they're super bright and they're super vibrant. They look starkly different to a raster monitor. And there's many arcade games that use them that are iconic because of things like Battlezone, Asteroids, Black Widow, etc. And they look magical. The glowing vector looks magical. But there was only one home console that I know of. I'm sure I'm sure someone can correct me with one I've never heard of. But there's only one that I, I knew of that had a Vector monitor at home. And that was, of course, the imaginatively named Vectrex. Um, Chris, have you ever seen a Vectrex in person? Can you put it into words what it's like, the difference between that and a, and a Vector monitor, and a, a Raster monitor? Yeah, yeah, I have indeed. In fact, the first ever console uh, I ever played on at a very young age, probably about six or seven, was in fact a Vectrex. And uh, it was at a friend's house. We played Spike and Mindstorm, I think it is, the Asteroids clone. Um, and, and to be honest, the difference in how the screen works never even entered my head. And even, you know, years later, I never, it's not something I, I actually thought about until, you know, somebody points it out. But essentially, you know, you've got the the points that you mentioned, you know, they're, they're always brighter, especially on the Vectrex. It's like this glows of light. And then the lines joining those uh, to actually, it's, it's vector, you know, you're literally drawing a line point to point. And the thing that's really easy to miss, when, especially when you think in context of the, of the time, is that where you've got a diagonal line, there's no jaggedness to it. You know, if you drew the same line on a spectrum, it would 
look like a series of blocks, you know, almost like, you know, a Lego staircase if you dared to look that closely at it. But with the vectors, it's it's just a line. It's just so there's sort of this fidelity to the image that you just didn't get in anything else at the time. Thanks to a submission from Senior by 445, or or is it Senior by 445? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've uh, had a headache trying to understand how someone could get colour from a monochrome display. So most of the time with the Vectrex, you got these clear overlays, which had a little bit of colour on them. And if you put these overlays on your Vectrex screen, it meant that certain areas of the screen got a colour to them. And that's how the original Space Invaders worked. The original Space Invaders was one colour, but they all had this film on it and it coloured the things a certain way. And you you wouldn't know unless you carefully watched where the bullets went and the bullets changed colour as they entered different zones. So that was that was the only way to get colour on it. And I'm my understanding of this might be a little bit wrong. So um, Chris, you can come in and tell me because you've also <laughs> watched the video. If, if I've misunderstood this, it's a little bit beyond me. But there was uh, an add-on for the Vectrex from back in the day called a Madtronics 3D Imager. And I don't think it was actually released, or if it was, hardly anyone had them. But later on, people have made them. And it works kind of like 3D glasses, where the Vectrex produces an image for each eye, and the thing you put on your head stops you seeing stops each eye seeing the wrong one. So you end up with two images, one for each eye, and you see a 3D image. And now someone has used that uh, with some clever stuff on the Vectrex to produce actual color on the Vectrex. They are now able to produce color through some kind of, I think a disc that spins around and colors the images at just the right time. Same kind of technology 3D that's using using the same thing, but it ends up with literally actual color on it. The video loses me a bit on how it actually works, and it goes into quite a lot of detail on... Um, on the different ways they make up the color through different uh, d- through different attributes and through different levels, and that bit I kind of understand, but the end result is amazing. Uh, now I've only seen a Vectrex in person once, and I, I've I've imagined how they would look over the years because I never, I never saw one, and I, it was every bit as good as I imagined. It was so bright and vibrant. The resolution is is infinite, if you know what I mean what Chris was saying about no jagged lines. I saw it in the cave and I played, played scramble and it was great. Mm. Um, but someone else I know has bought a Vectrex recently and it was all totally fine and they all lived happily ever after. Dean. <sighs> Thanks, Dave. Um, so, yeah, well, first of all, the first time I ever saw a Vectrex, funny enough, was actually um, when I worked in a game station store. Um, somebody actually traded it in, and at that point, I had never seen one before. Um, and let's just say I could have bought it for a very, very stupidly low cost price, and I went, nah, I don't need a Vectrex. And that has haunted me for the rest of my life. Anyway, onto the story. So I thought, do you know what? I want to get one of these. I've watched um, Neil uh, RMC Retro's uh, videos on the the carts and all of the other cool stuff, and including stuff like this incredible technology that's now starting to be remade for something that's well, it's it's, it's decades old, and people are still making these amazing add-ons for it. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to start looking for one. And I saw one that was relatively cheap. In fact, 
uh, this is only three of the five games uh, that I've got. So there's uh, Armor Attack. Um, sorry, I'm reading it backwards on my camera. Uh, Star Trek, um, which is quite cool. Um, Spike, which you've uh, also mentioned with the great audios of, oh, Molly! Um, so, yeah, <laughs> if you've never heard it, you're not missing much. But the game is quite cool. Um, I'm trying to remember the other two games now. I think... Um, uh, oh, God, my brain has gone dead. But, yeah, there, there was two other... No, no, unfortunately not. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there was two other games that came with it. And um, unfortunately, when it arrived, and I don't know if Duncan wants to put some rain and sad music on my face at this point. Um, but uh, yeah, let's just say it wasn't delivered in a very appreciative um, and well-respected format. Um, it was obviously quite kicked about. And when I took the top part of the box off and removed the attempt at packaging the uh, outer casing had been cracked and the screen had moved so my heart had completely sunk to whole new lows that i didn't think i could achieve in my life um and now the project resurrectrex has now begun uh, as i did ask someone on twitter to give me a project so um i may start making a video on it uh, me and my brother have taken some photos and I think he's going to start doing some videos uh, uh, and photos of what we do. But from what I can see, the, the unit was bought not working. So even if it did arrive fine, it probably wouldn't have worked anyway um, because through some checking and, and lots of research we've done, it looks like the onboard fuse and possibly the transformer can put. However, it looks like, and I am really, really hoping so, that the actual screen, the CRT, might be intact everything seems to be okay so i may have got away with one um but the craziest thing of all is through me tweeting that that the amount of response i've had i mean i can't even remember how many people had seen that tweet i think it reached something stupid like twenty thousand people and i'm going uh okay and the amount of people who were a very upset obviously as i was but um you know offering their support as well so there is this kind of everlasting community for this as well so um yeah it's it's something completely new for me obviously it's not the um the outcome i wanted but you know maybe maybe we'll have a phoenix rising by the end of it so yeah a very sad story but may have a happy ending yeah i saw that, that richard from um heber who share the, the mm. mill with uh with neil and alex Richard had, had mentioned to you, and if there's anyone that can fix it, it will be Richard. Uh, he said he's an expert at these things. The, the, we talk about bringing machines back and so on, but the Vectrex is one where I think more than anything, the Vectrex is one that everybody feels it must be saved. Uh, <laughs> they must must be preserved because with, it, with anything else, you can plug them into another monitor or you can use an emulator. You can't emulate the, Ve the Vectrex screen. You exactly. can't emulate it. There's, there's yeah, nothing. Yeah. There's nothing. The only thing you can get like it apparently these days is an oscilloscope, uh, which mm. uses the same technology. But you're not going to buy a. You're not going to be able to buy an oscilloscope monitor like the Vectrex. No, so going back to the story, sure. amazing that's happened. Uh, I think it opens the door to making games in color for the Vectrex and possibly seeing games like the the Pytrex if you're playing something on that in color. I don't really understand it that well. It's a bit <laughs> beyond me. Um, but it's really, really cool to see colors on it. Um, so um, links in the show notes. Have a look at it. 
We've mentioned in uh, previous episodes all the amazing retro venues available to visit, you know, things like arcade bars and retro shops, museums, and let's call them hands-on exhibition spaces. Uh, and I've confessed that, you know, whilst I've visited a couple of them in Perth, uh, and Neil was in fact very kind to op- uh, kind enough to open up the cave for me when I was in the UK so that we could record an episode of This Week in Retro, funnily enough, uh, sitting at the same desk, um, I really need to visit more. Uh, And my advice is go visit these places as soon as possible because you never know when you might not be able to get in. Uh, 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 After you've watched the podcast completely. Yes. Don't go right now after after you've finished watching or listening to the podcast. Uh, But no, seriously, we need to make use of these places because you might not be able to get in even if your staff... Okay, so, yep, according to a story um, by, let's call him Jeff, uh, because I don't know how to pronounce his surname, on gamesindustry.biz, that's exactly what happened to the National Video Game Museum. Ah, is it Rosso? I don't know why I had trouble with that. Yeah, okay. Um, But this is exactly what happened to the National Video Game Museum team in Sheffield. Uh, They turned up for work only to find all the locks on Castle House had been changed. It's allegedly to do with a landlord dispute, but not between the museum and the landlord. It's it's actually, I mean, that would just be way too simple to, to resolve. This is to do with a dispute, as far as I understand it, and according to the story, uh, a dispute between their landlord, Collider, and the overall landlord, North Point. So that really sucks because there's nothing the museum, as I understand it, can actually do about it. It's, of course, affecting, you know, normal operations, but it could, it could also affect things like, you know, school group bookings and, and that kind of stuff. Dean, have you been to NVM or similar places? And do you agree that we should make use of them as a priority just in case they're gone tomorrow? Um, I have been to a few of those. Um, and I agree. I, I think there is definitely something for us, um, not just in the UK, but I mean around the world about preservation and um, and and the education for the future generations. I think it's incredibly important to remind the youth, if you want to call them that, um, or the next coming generation of, of the history call of them Zoomers. I think they like being called Zoomers. <laughs> Zoomers. Zoomers. Um, hey, Zoomer. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be said about um, educating the, the, the Zoomers or the next generation. Um, Don't call I them Zoomers. I was joking. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Um, I, I think it's very important that the preservation of these things via copying or whatever we want to say, um, or, or having these units uh, out. Things like the Vetrex is a perfect example, right? Where there isn't really another example of that. You know, um, you know, you could argue, and I know Dave's probably going to reach through the screen and grab my throat. Where things like the Amiga and the ST are of a similar type but when you look at something like the yeah. vetrex it's no, no, so you're right. You're right. far yeah. removed from anything else there's no other experience yeah. like that but but even things like i remember um uh, a lady in my office very recently actually gave me a, a spectrum with a load of cassettes and i had it on my desk at work and um someone walked past my desk and went oh what's that and i said oh it's a, a spectrum and they were like cassettes really i was like yeah that's how games used to come and they were like no way. So I had like this 20-minute dialogue with this person of educating them about what cassettes were and, you know, the, the strife and problems we used to have of, of uh, you know, write, reading games back through a, a cassette tape. And again, things like that just, just helps reaffirm, you know, how far technologically we've come, especially in 
you know, I mean, I'm only 37. And, you know, in my short lifetime, the change that we've gone from cassettes to floppy disks, you know, five and a quarter, you know, three and a half. And, you know, all of that from, you know, flashable ROM cartridges to, you know, various different types of CD based media. I mean, the change we've had is huge. Um, Whereas, obviously, you know, maybe the slightly older generation have gone through even more, um, if you include the kind of arcade setup all the way to the home computers and so on and so forth. So I think it's incredibly important that we do as much as we can, not just to preserve, but to educate as well. And I think that's why um, places like The Mill, RMC Retro and Arcade Archive and and the multitude of different places across the country and around the world should be explored. Um, In fact, I remember Neil had a... A gentleman, I want to say, was from Latvia. I could be wrong. Um, who had a similar, smaller version of the cave, I guess you could call it, where he was going through a lot of the um, vintage computing from their era. And again, that's so far removed from what we've experienced because it's a whole different generation of people and a whole different level of computing. So, yeah, I, I think it's something very important. I think people should actively try and and go out to these places and i think school should make more of an effort as well you know um i know that it is a very important subject but i think the history of it is just as important as the as the here and now and what we use right now as well Mm, that's true yeah dave dave what do you reckon about a the lockout but also um (laughs) dr local actually gave you a mission he said there's a new um retro arcade bar opening in Aberdeen. So he's given you a mission to go and check it out. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on that as well? Um, I'm refusing the mission. Um, oh. Sorry, <laughs> but uh, they actually mentioned two. There's one in Aberdeen and one in Fort William. Mm. They're a long way away from me. It's a three-hour drive to get there. So a three-hour drive to get there and a three-hour drive to get back. That's six hours gone. I'm not likely to go there. I'd rather go to the archive for example or maybe down somewhere halfway down there where i'm more likely to meet other people uh like my friends and so on rather than go somewhere if i go to aberdeen i'm not likely it's, it's not on anyone else's way if you know what i mean so i'm not likely to travel that far um without meeting up with people uh because as much as i do love going to the arcades and so on and so on and seeing museums and all the rest of it people are, 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 are at least half of it. So I think I would probably want to go to the archive rather than this. I, I actually haven't been to the archive yet. I'll need to go hopefully maybe sometime towards the end of this year. Um, but yeah, as to NVM, going back to the story, I certainly can't give them any legal advice, but they do need to take it immediately. I'm sure they will have already. I'm sure they'll have taken legal advice. I don't think they need to be told to that, but you must take it immediately. Uh, I hope it's resolved soon, especially as it seems to be no salt, fault of their own. There are protections in place for individuals for these circumstances, but I don't know about for uh, organisations and companies if they extend to them for it. Um, but it does bring up um, my, which we we often discuss in here, FOMO. Um, we're always getting FOMO here, which is fear of missing out. So many of the places that we might see on, on retro.directory, um, which is, I would suggest you go to retro.directory, you find these places, but so many of them might not be there in a few years' time. Um, it, it's just a, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's just a fact of business that most businesses that are set up don't actually succeed. So people set up a business, and they, they try it, and it maybe doesn't work. So even when you hear about a new place opening up, you might only have a few months to visit it before it before, before they realise it doesn't work. And I would imagine that if you look at what's available now in retro, 
and you look in five years' time, it'll be starkly different. Uh, I always find that a little bit melancholy, a little bit sad when I go through old YouTube videos and I look at the comments for a channel that's been around for a while, and the people commenting are a completely different set of people than the than, than comment now. Um, so the whole retro, I mean, retro's been around longer than the, the original thing was, but people slide in and out, things, things come and go. I can remember... Atari ST fan sites that are no longer the little green desktop, for example, they they're just gone forever now. They're on they're on the for the wayback machine, but it's not quite the same. Um, so yeah, definitely we need to decide what we want to do and and uh, and go out and do it because it might not be there. Can I use it or lose it? Yeah, it's true. Um, this story was shared with us by Projecto Six Five Zero Two and G Seven VFY, um, but it was published on February twenty eighth. Uh, and um, in it, Cat Powell and John O'Shea, the co-CEOs of NVM, they said in part, we are optimistic about finding a resolution with North Point in the coming days, which will enable us to continue operating in the premises as usual. So we have to mention that because it's quite possible that actually at time of us recording and especially going to where everything is actually fine. So please don't stop, you know, <laughs> trying to make contact if that's somewhere you want to go. But do, you know, use this as a wake up to you've got to use these places. Um, they also say members of the public and schools will be notified if their bookings are to be affected. So if you're suddenly a school teacher that's organized a trip and you're having a bit of a meltdown, then again, contact them and I'm sure all is well. I note, you know, the, the publication date because, you know, this has probably been resolved already. So we're actually going to reach out to MVM for comment as well, just so that we can, you know, make sure we've tidied up all the details on this story. But I do know that at time of recording, there's nothing about this on their website. So, and they're still taking bookings. So I'm pretty sure it's, it's probably been resolved. Uh, regardless, yeah, the takeaway from this is to just make time and go and visit your local retro venues, whatever they may be. So on to the question of the week. And last week, we asked you, is there an old game which could benefit from a new interface or an interface for another game? Which game is it? And how would it benefit? So... I've got number one up. Do you want me to jump in? Number one, Chris. Go ahead. Biscuit. Um, says Tomb Raider would benefit from a Monkey Island-style point-and-click interface uh, because grab the edge of your useless waste of polygons, Super Mario couldn't have done it. Every YouTube solution in the world <laughs> can get up there every time, uh, and after four years, she's still fa uh, falling on her squashed pointy head for me. So <laughs> there you go. A completely, yeah. a completely different slot on Tomb Raider for reasons I was not expecting. Hmm. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah. Tomb Raider, I mean, it'll turn into Indiana Jones 3, I guess, if they did that. Mm. But yeah, yeah. Tomb, Raider, Tomb Raider would be great as a point and click. Yeah, mm. I'll go for that. Good answer. Number two. Sorry, Antiques before Geeks. you go there, somebody's also put point and click Gran Turismo in reply. It was Biscuit. I'm sorry. <laughs> point and click Gran Turismo. <laughs> That's point. fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> was what was the one Peter Serenfinowitz's show? He said, uh, "Yeah, it was it was tennis text adventure." Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Stuart, the next answer. Your opponent returns with slice. <laughs> <laughs> Get ball. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was something something like that. Um, mm. 
Antiques for Geeks says virtually any football game on a console, you need one button and deft right, flick right or left for aftertouch. Not a button for pass, one for chip, one for sprint, one for roll around in the floor to get a free kick when you (laughs) lost the ball to a legitimate tackle. Yes, football game interfaces peaked with sensible soccer on the Amiga naturally. What he means is kickoff too. Um, No, it's not me as out of date. It's the children who are wrong. Now, Antis for Geeks is a really good point. We're often criticising micros for having one button, one button, one button, one button. And what he's saying here is that when they got all the four buttons, you know, the the four X, O, triangle, I don't know, square? Square. There we go. Square. There we go. <laughs> I, I'm in it with the Zoomers. Um, when they got these 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 buttons on there, they've, they've gone and put one for everything and maybe it's not the right thing. And I, I certainly agree when I've played FIFA Um I'm not very good at it. I get confused. I'd prefer one button, one in one intuitive button. So I'm with you on that one, Antiques for Geeks. Dean, would you like to read the next one? I will. One last thing I'm just going to say on that is I've always said that by having a restriction on something, whether it's a creative reasoning, like, for instance, there's a, a reduced amount of colours that you can use or a piece of hardware, it means there's more focus on making the best of what you've got. And that's why I've always said yeah. things like mm. kickoff, sensible soccer, the focus was not around how many combinations of button you can do for some crazy celebration, but it just makes the gameplay a lot better. And I think yeah. that's yeah. that's where restrictions can lead to creativity. Anyway, I, I digress. <laughs> um, right, I will read the next one, which is from uh, Toxic Seahorse. Interesting username. Uh, oh, I do like this. Definitely Syndicate. I went back to have a go recently. The interface stuff seems logical now. Simply does. Oh, sorry. Um, stuff that seems logical now simply doesn't work like it should. Also, an amazing game that needs a remake. One hundred and fifty percent agree. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Syndicate is great. Um, I don't remember the interface being bad, no. but that's. But that doesn't mean it isn't because I think we've found things. We've settled on interfaces that work now. And there are things that are pretty much set in stone. And if you go back to an older game that doesn't do it that way, not necessarily saying the older game is wrong, but because we're so used to doing it a new, one way, it feels wrong. So yeah, maybe 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 it it, it, uh, fact, it would benefit from a remake. What about Syndicate as a split screen four player four player um, FPS? Because I just text couldn't adventure. get on text adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Use Persuadatron. Person is persuaded. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, what is the question of the week for next week for our listeners? The question of the week this week is, what are your honest thoughts about game piracy? Was it justified or were we all just making excuses? And also throw in there... Here's a topic. You know, what, what kind of pirate were you? Did you just copy the games that you borrowed off your mates or were you in it for the money? Yeah. Let us know in the subreddit. Yeah, I was, about, I was just about to say, or instead of being a pirate, were you more of a cowboy? You know, you could go for that. <laughs> that route as well. Pirates and so. cowboys. Exactly. Because you didn't ninja. have a pirate hat. <laughs> <laughs> or an eye patch. Dean, thank you very much for coming on, Dean. No, uh, no next problems. week's show, we will have uh, Neil back. Uh, and we've also got another guest on next week as well. Uh, lots of guests these days. But thank you very much for coming on, Dean. Uh, have a look at Dean on Twitch. It's uh, twitch.com slash Mean Machine Dean, I think. 
close. It's twitch.tv slash me machine. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so, twitch.tv. Yeah, right. yeah they, 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 they omitted the dot com and just went straight for TV because it's TV. Kane has. <laughs> interactive TV. Well, at least it is on my channel. If you like uh, screaming cowboys and people who pop up saying, wow, it's definitely the place to be. So, wow. Awesome. Yeah. Use the horn. Use the horn. Indeed, indeed. There is a lot of there is a lot of horn, and then lots of people like to do that very loud and give me uh, ringing ears for a while. But anyway, pop by if uh, you get five minutes. So thank you for joining us this week, and we'll see you next week. Bye bye. 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 This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agima, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.